1993, American author and relationship <coughs> counsellor John Gray wrote a book entitled Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. The book was the highest ranked work of non-fiction of the 1990s and it spent 121 weeks on the bestseller list. The book's central thesis is that most common relationship problems between men and women are the result of fundamental psychological differences between the genders. Now you would reckon the notion that men and women think differently is hardly a revelation. And yet, at least 50 million people thought that this was such a revolutionary concept that they bought the book. Jump forward a generation and it would seem that Jordan Peterson is just as popular for very similar reasons. So what's going on here? Why is it that what's been demonstrably true since the temptation and fall of Adam and Eve has become such a publishing sensation? Well, I think John Gray and Jordan Peterson have garnered a huge audience simply because they confirm what we know to be true. Men and women are different. And even though that's so obviously true, cultural theorists have for decades been telling us otherwise. One very powerful source of cultural theory came from the feminist movement. In Australia, they trace their largely Christian roots to the suffragettes of the mid-1800s and early 1900s. However, by the 1960s, the call for women's liberation had moved way beyond the demand for basic human rights simply to vote. Instead, they called for a cultural revolution, a revolution that would fundamentally overturn the ways in which men and women related to one another. Central to their thesis was the insistence that non-biological differences between men and women are culturally determined. Such differences, they argued, are imposed by a patriarchal and a male-dominated society and should therefore be resisted. Simone de Beauvoir, one of the founding sisters of feminism, expressed this view and she wrote, One is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Now, if Simone is right, that gender is a cultural construct, then your gender is whatever you want it to be. Now, cultural theory like that has undoubtedly led to today's widespread gender diversity, or should I call it gender confusion. As a culture, we are confused not only about gender identity, but also about gender roles and expectations. Certainly feminism has achieved much progress and has nearly always been in the vanguard of highlighting sexual discrimination in finance, in the workplace and even in homes where domestic abuse can be readily perpetrated as in-house dispute resolution. What a deceitful nonsense that is. But elements of the feminist message have also led to disillusionment. Increasing numbers of women have found that the path of self-fulfilment and self-assertiveness has often led not to a brave new world, but to a sad and lonely one. In the last 20 years, sociologists have documented the failure of feminism to live up to its promise that the liberated woman can have it all. It's simply unrealistic. 
and it puts undue pressure on women to simultaneously meet the high expectations of family, career, hobbies and friends. It's a juggling act and it's exhausting. And if you have a husband or a partner who just doesn't get it, then exhaustion gets compounded by exasperation. And of course, it's so often true that men don't get it. The female psyche is mystery enough without having to grapple with the complexity and confusion of feminist and gender ideology. Young men in particular are readily confused even about their own identity. And the tightrope of political correctness can leave them feeling emasculated. In response, some will adopt an almost metrosexual or asexual identity, whilst others will assert their masculinity in aggressive, boorish and even dangerous ways. I suspect that though gender role confusion can never be an excuse for any form of abuse, it certainly seems to be implicated in the rising tide of violence against women. Now the politics of gender role is not a new phenomenon. In the first century world of the Gospel, there was clearly a patriarchal culture within the Jewish nation. Consensus was that men were superior. They would even thank God daily in the synagogue for not making them women. Jewish women on their own never spoke directly to a rabbi. And in the synagogue, they sat apart from the men and made no contribution to the service. As for pagan women in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, in one sense, their situation was even worse, though more ambiguous. Women remained the property of their fathers or husbands. And yet, first, and yet, first century philosophers but were developing theories of just relationships. Whilst they were certainly not advocating equality in society or under the law, they held that nature gives men and women equal capacity for virtue and equal obligations to act virtuously. The application of such ideas, however, was entirely limited to the wealthy and the ruling elite. But out of the Jewish nation at that time, there did come a cultural revolution. And that revolution was centred on Jesus of Nazareth. And though he never married and chose only male apostles, he accepted many women in his band of followers, always treating them with the utmost respect and speaking to them like no other rabbi. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, the revolution continued with the Apostle Paul, taking the Gospel to the Greco-Roman world. And though often dismissed as a misogynist, it was Paul who said there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the revolutionary idea of the Gospel it resulted in immediate changes when Christians gathered for fellowship and for worship. No longer were women segregated at church and they rightly began to take an active role in the church service. You can see it there in verse 5. The women are praying and prophesying in church. 
Now, these changes were so sudden and dramatic that, not surprisingly, it led to confusion in the Corinthian church. Some in the church, probably Gentile converts from the classes of the wealthy and the ruling elite, were taking the revolution into their own hands. They were importing their own cultural values into the life of the church. So Paul writes to them here in chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, to correct them. Now I'm well aware that the topic of relationships between men and women and their role in the church can be highly contentious. More often than not, issues arise when the church is seen to hold beliefs and practices contrary to the prevailing culture. The recent marriage debate is clear evidence of that. As well, for some decades now, the church has been seen as the last bastion of male chauvinism in a society that has rejected it. As Christians, however, the issue needs to be reframed. Instead of apologising for failing to meet the norms of our prevailing culture, the real question has to be, what does the Bible teach on these matters and how does that govern our belief and practice? Now, I don't pretend that that's an easy question to answer, but I do contend that if we look carefully at the passage and Paul's teaching elsewhere on these topics, then we can be confident about the basic message. And the basic message is that men and women are equal and yet different. Their roles are complementary, not identical. Equality does not mean sameness. <coughs> and the background to the controversy that Paul addresses at the time is that women in public customarily at the time had their head covered. To be in public without a head covering was the common practice of prostitutes. Men, on the other hand, well, they didn't cover their heads. And the exception to that was the ritual practice of Roman men who did cover their heads when they were offering sacrifices in the pagan temples. For Christian women to uncover their heads and for Christian men to cover their heads was therefore a public scandal. It would seem then that what happened in Corinth was that when the Christians met for worship, some of the women, wanting to bring attention to themselves, would choose to discard their head covering. And some of the men, taking their lead from pagan worship, would don a head covering, hoping to look simultaneously pious and important. And though Christian worship at the time was typically in the home of Christian believers, but Paul insists that these meetings will are open to the public. They should therefore be conducted with decorum and sensibility to public mores. But Paul's argument is not simply that things be done decently and in order. His argument is theological and it's related to order both within the Godhead and in creation. The relationship between Christ and his Father is likened by Paul to the relationship between a man and his wife. And though verse 3 says that the head of the woman is man, the words for man and woman are readily translated as husband and wife. And just as Jesus 
who is fully equal with the Father, places himself under the Father's authority, so too, Paul says, this is the model for the relationship between a man and his wife. In marriage, the principle of headship is also modelled on the relationship between Christ and the Church. And just as roles of Christ and the Church are not interchangeable, so too the roles of husband and wife are distinct. The wife is called to place herself under the headship of her husband, just as the Church is under the headship of Christ. And such a relationship, therefore, can in no way imply that the wife is expected to be a lapdog of a brutal and domineering man. She is his equal in creation and salvation and has no less dignity and worth than he. It would be perfectly normal and natural, therefore, for a wife to disagree with her husband and certainly urge him to change his mind. But unless his decisions are clearly contrary to the revealed will of God, then headship should operate to give the husband both the final decision and the final responsibility for that decision. And this is not an excuse for a husband to abuse his position. If a husband is exercising headship as he should, then ordinarily he would be sacrificing his own self-interest out of love for his wife. Christ is the perfect head who sets the example and the standard for all human headship. Christ's headship over us does not demean us, but rather it enables us to flourish and become the people that he calls us to be. In the same way, a husband and wife will flourish if headship is received and exercised as an act of love and service to the other. As for headship within the church, there's once again a distinction in roles between men and women. We're not, we not simply biologically male and female. Our gender is not the product of culture and nurture, but it has to do with our creation and our nature, and therefore it has application to church order and practice. And though some would suggest that Paul is simply reflecting first century, first century popular culture, the reality is that he bases the arguments not on cultural relativity, but on the foundational doctrines of creation and the Trinity. Different roles, therefore, for men and women in the church are not just the result of particular customs of the day. Rather, they are a part of God's creation design for humanity. Paul concludes his argument with a puzzling statement in verse 10. He says, For this reason a woman ought to have authority or a sign of authority over her head because of the angels. And nobody's sure why the angels are mentioned, though it may be that they're seen to be as observers in our worship and as guardians of the created order. Their presence, therefore, would necessitate paying great heed to conventions of modesty. Now, having said what I have so far, I do not want us to conclude that head coverings are either appropriate or necessary during the church worship service. 
I'm old enough to remember the days when women would routinely wear hats to church. And even as a boy, it seemed clear to me at the time that this wasn't always an act of piety or a sign of commitment to a loving husband. Very often it seemed to me to be little more than a fashion accessory, an expression more of style than sobriety. If head coverings had a purpose in church during the first century, it was as a cultural expression that signified the importance of headship and valued difference rather than sameness. And we value difference because that's the way God has created us. Our roles are not the same but complementary. And we will most thrive and glorify God when we treasure that distinction rather than seeking to blur it. Now, doing that today probably doesn't mean wearing a head covering, but it does mean following the ways in which our culture distinguishes between the sexes. And admittedly, that's a hard thing to do because a lot of clothes and hairstyles are perfectly acceptable for both men and women. Suffice to say that men should not present themselves in public with the deliberate intention of looking like a woman. If any of you men turned up to church in a dress one day, I'd be curious to know why. You might wonder why I'm dressed like this. And though I've met plenty of women around these parts wearing jeans and boots, a hat and a check shirt, I can nearly always tell the difference between them and their husbands. Perhaps it's the longer hair. Gender differences are fundamental to who we are as human beings. So let's rejoice in the fact that God does make us different and resist the modern trend towards the bland and the confused. Now another obvious implication of what the Bible teaches about headship is that men should be willing to take a lead at home and in the church. Unfortunately, within our own culture, home and church are too often relegated as the unique responsibility of women. And though my father, as a role model, had his failings, he certainly left his sons with a clear understanding that in the home, division of labour doesn't necessarily divide along gender lines. Sure, we took out bins and we mowed lawns, but we also made our own beds, we washed dishes and we swept floors. And unusually, it was my father who always took us to church. I have no recollection of my mother ever being in church. At high school, I was taught almost entirely by men, all of whom were deeply committed to the belief and practice of God and church. So Christian belief and practice has always seemed to me to be a manly thing to do. Only sissy boys stayed away from church. And though that might seem unusual within our own culture, it certainly wasn't unusual in the first century church. The responsibility of a man is to be a servant leader within his home and his church. And if men are reluctant to take up that responsibility, the result will be that women will feel increasingly exasperated and compelled to assume the responsibilities of their husbands. However functional and pragmatic that may seem to be, the reality is that families flourish and churches grow 
when men fulfil their roles and their responsibilities at home and in the church. And throughout the world, families and churches are strongest and growing, where men and women take seriously the biblical paradigm of headship expressed in servanthood. So men, love your wives and your families by leading them in service and in worship. And women, encourage your men and pray for them. Don't let exasperation make you pragmatic and don't let pragmatism justify role reversal. If you're looking for rules on gender roles in the home and the church, you will not find a strict list in the Bible. What you will find is a constant reminder that equality does not mean sameness and that headship does not mean servitude. We best discern appropriate gender roles at home and in the church not by looking to rules, but by remembering the nature of the relationship between men and women and seeking to live accordingly. If you want biblical models of what that might look like in practice, then I would point to Jesus and I would point to Paul. The irony of that, however, is that neither of them were married. And as for models of women in the church, the New Testament provides numerous examples of women making important contributions in a way that was revolutionary. Though at the time the testimony of women was not considered valuable, Jesus chose women to be the first witnesses to his resurrection. A woman's home became the first base for the earliest church. And Paul's first convert in Europe was a woman, Lydia. Paul mentions women frequently in his letters, not least in Romans 16, in which Tryphena and Tryphosa are just two of many that he describes as women who work hard in the Lord. Now some churches can legitimately be challenged as to whether they reflect the New Testament teaching on gender roles and differences. As a diocese, we do not believe that female priests and bishops are a valid expression or interpretation of the biblical testimony. Nevertheless, we can't assume that having an entirely male clergy will automatically make us faithful witnesses to the biblical model. If the role of women was prominent in the New Testament church, if praying and prophesying in public worship was standard practice for women, then at the very least we should be asking ourselves, how can this best be practised within our own diocese, parish and church? This is not a challenge to be contentious, but a plea that we hold fast to the teachings that have been passed on to us, and so do all things to the glory of God and the building up of his church. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have created us, both male and female, so that together we may fully reflect your image and likeness. Help us to value our differences so that as your sons and daughters, we might grow to the fullness of all that you have called us to be. May we as husbands and fathers be as Christ to our wives and our families, leading them in service and worship, and sacrificing ourselves so that they might flourish and grow 
in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May our homes and marriages be a witness to our culture of the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen.